Good morning. Well, my name is Brad, and I am a wimp. I don't like pain. I don't like conflict. I don't like discomfort. I don't like awkwardness. I don't like criticism. My natural instinct is to avoid doing uncomfortable things whenever possible. I am a wimp. Now somebody's thinking, dude, come on, man up. <laughs> well, thanks for the encouragement. It's a little bit sexist, but um, thank you. <laughs> but I am a wimp, and I suspect that I'm not the only wimp in the room. Some people might be so wimpy that they're afraid even to admit their wimpiness. Sometimes the folks that roar the loudest are the most fragile. Am I right, control freaks? I don't know if there's that many of us that like conflict. Uh, we can be wimps, and as wimps, we are drawn to peace and equilibrium and comfort and control. And what we like about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it promises us blessings. Right? Blessings, control, uh, life, forgiveness, hope, love, healing, joy, purpose, adventure, even self-improvement. We like all that stuff. But there's another part of the call of Christ, and it's the promise of struggle, of sacrifice, opposition, death, the cross. How do we feel about that? You know, we're into the darker part of the story of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark now, the dark days. And in hindsight, we know, as Christians, we know it all has a happy ending. We know it all ends well. But that doesn't mean that we should rush through the valley that is the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. Because there are some very, very important lessons to learn in the struggle and the pain of the cross. And today we're going to be looking at a trial. Well, two trials, actually. Two trials that not only Mark, but all four of the Gospels weave together into a single story, I think with the intent that we compare the two trials with one another. And that's what we're going to do. And the question that we're going to wrestle with is how do we live boldly and hopefully amidst suffering and opposition? What does it mean to suffer well for Jesus' sake. So we are in the Gospel of Mark, and we are in chapter 14, and I want to pick up the reading here at verse 53 in Mark 14. And this is what we read in Mark 14, 53. It says, They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and there he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. 
Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked. We have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him, and they blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophesy! And the guards took him and beat him. So here we have trial number one, the trial of Jesus. He's being tried before the high priest and his council. And they're looking for a way to condemn him. Now we know from the story that the whole thing is rigged. Right? This, isn't, this isn't a trial to find out the truth. This is an inquisition to figure out what charge they can use to legitimately put Jesus to death. It's a rigged trial. And in their minds, he's already guilty. They just have to build a claim. Now they run into a problem, and that is they can't find anything to accuse Jesus of that would justify them putting to death. They even try to conjure up some false testimony, get people to tell stories about Jesus, and even then they can't figure out. They can't get any story to stick. They can't find anything that would justify putting him to death. They try to get Jesus to say something self-incriminating, and he just keeps his mouth shut. He won't defend himself. And one thing in this story, as we go through it and we read this account, one thing becomes crystal clear. Jesus is absolutely, completely innocent of all charges. The whole project is going to fail as long as Jesus keeps his mouth shut. But then the high priest asks him the direct question, are you the Messiah sent from God? And Jesus breaks his silence, and he says, yes, I am. And without going into all the details, the language here, he talks about sitting at God's right hand, coming in clouds. Even these are even more explicit claims to his divine identity as the one from heaven, the son of God. Now in Jewish law, that's blasphemy. And blasphemy is a capital offense. So ironically, now ironically, Jesus is actually innocent of blasphemy because he's telling the truth. But that doesn't matter. To them, this is blasphemy. His opponents now have a charge they can use. Jesus has provided it with his own testimony. And so we have this case, this trial, in which an innocent man tells the truth that ends up getting him falsely accused of an, event, of an offense which will end in his death. That's trial number one. But there's another trial in this story. And here we pick up the reading in verse 66. It says, while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You were also with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know. I don't understand what you're talking about, he said. And he went out into the entryway, tried to get away from her. 
When the servant girl saw him there, she again said to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. And again, he denied it. And after a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I do not know this man you're talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and he wept. This is trial number two. This is Peter out in the courtyard. His jury is a random assortment of people and his accuser is a servant girl. He's out there milling around with the crowd, with the guards and servants and bystanders, maybe some from the garden incident, and a servant girl. Just wrap your mind around those two words and all the negative cultural implications you think comes with that. A servant girl comes and says, weren't you one of those followers of Jesus? His jury is this random assortment of people. His accuser is a servant girl. And it's not even clear he's in any real danger. It's interesting when you read through the whole story, when Jesus was arrested in the garden, none of the disciples who were with him were arrested. Now there is a, a, a brief account of them trying to grab one guy who gets away, but there's no account that says they pursued the disciples or tried to arrest Jesus' disciples during this time. Even when Peter assaults the high priest's servant in the garden, he's not arrested. Got to love the Gospel of John. Uh, if you remember from a few, a few um, passages ago, when they're in the garden and Jesus is arrested, Mark sort of cryptically says, um, and one of the bystanders drew his sword and cut off the servant's ear. And Luke kind of does the same thing. I'm one of the crowd. And, you know, Matthew, I'm one of the crowd. John, it was Peter. <laughs> it's Pete. <laughs> Just throws Peter under the bus. Gotta love John, right? Uh, just throws Peter under the bus. It's Peter who cuts off the high priest's servant's ear with the sword. And he's not arrested. Peter goes into the courtyard, and according to, again, to the Gospel of John, he's not the only disciple in the courtyard. John has also come into the courtyard. And John's not arrested. In fact, it seems that he's allowed almost a, a privileged position. He's allowed to observe some of the proceedings. Nobody um, arrests Peter. So it's not even clear whether Peter is in any real danger at this point. What is clear is that Peter is completely unprepared for the question. That's what's clear. And in his panic, he vehemently denies three times that he has, has any association with Jesus. I don't even know, he won't even say his name. I don't even know the man you're talking about. You see, Jesus is on trial for his life, and he has boldly declared the truth, knowing it will cost him his life. Peter, caught off guard by a servant girl out in the courtyard, lies and denies any association with Jesus in order to save himself the discomfort of being recognized as one of Jesus' followers. And it's only when the rooster crows that Peter realizes what he has done. So these are the two, two trials. 
Now, what do we take away from these two trials? Now, I think there's actually a number of things that we could look at, a number of practical lessons. We could look at prayer. I mean, if you go look back, remember Jesus told Peter, pray and watch, and Peter couldn't do it, and now he's not prepared, right? We could look at prayer. We could look at courage. We could look at honesty. We could look at how Peter talks a big game but then doesn't back it up. We could talk about how Peter is very bold when he's with Jesus, but as soon as he's separated from Jesus, he's very cowardly. That would be a very interesting conversation. Uh, But I want to talk about what I think was the big takeaway that Peter took from this experience. And the reason I think this was Peter's big takeaway is because this is what Peter writes about in his letter, the letter of 1 Peter. He weaves this theme through the whole book of 1 Peter. So I think this is, above all things, this is what Peter learned that day in that courtyard. And so we, we, uh, let me read for you just a little bit from First uh, Peter. Chapter 2, starting at uh, verse 19. He says this, It is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. How is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Just think about that, that verse 21. Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. It's actually a very well-loved verse. But often when we think of that verse, we think of this verse in a very positive light. Gee, all the, all the nice things that Jesus did as an example. He was an example of love, and he was an example of kindness and generosity, and, and he was an example of, of mercy and, and all these types of things. He's your example to live. But Peter has a much more specific example in mind. Jesus is an example of one who suffered for doing what is right. That's the example that Jesus has left for us to emulate. You see, we have this very fragile understanding of suffering. Now, I mean, there there is suffering that is due to our own choices, our own sins, our own foolishness. We sometimes bring suffering upon ourselves. We also live in a broken world, and and, then there's suffering for that. That's not the kind of suffering I want to focus on today. There is another kind of suffering, and it's the suffering of opposition. And when it becomes extreme, it's the suffering that we know as persecution. It's the suffering that we endure because we follow Jesus. That kind of opposition. See, we like to think that following Jesus leads to the good things. Experiencing God's love, his presence, his grace, his friendship, his power, his provisions. You know, experiencing miracles, experiencing healings, all the good things that God gives us. And we do get those things. Those are the blessings of following Jesus. But Jesus explicitly told his followers that following him would also lead to hardships. They would be misunderstood. They would be slandered. They would be falsely accused. They would be mistreated and persecuted. Some of them would even be killed. 
Sometimes openly identifying with Jesus makes you a target. A number of years back, when Barb and I were in Romania, we, we met this family. He was a pastor, and his daughter, adult daughter, had just finished med school and had done very well. She had graduated somewhere near the top of her class, if not the top of her class. She had been done very well in school. And she was waiting, and I think it had been a few years now, waiting for her medical license. And they would not give her her medical license, even though she had passed med school. And the only reason that this family could think of as to why, because they wouldn't explain it, the only reason they could think of as to why she was, had been denied her medical license was her dad was a pastor. And so they were just conveniently never getting around to giving her her license so she could be a doctor. Now, we in this country have not experienced a lot of open opposition and persecution for being Christians. We really haven't. Not anything compared to what some of our brothers and sisters around the world experience. But we do live in a time when the perception of our culture of Christianity is shifting. And it kind of makes us nervous, doesn't it? This perception is shifting. We aren't always seen as positively as we used to. And sometimes we are seen as actually the problem rather than the solution. And sometimes we, we kind of have, get this sense that the, the, the opinion of our society of the church of Jesus Christ is shifting and not to the better. And it's possible that we may see more open opposition and maybe even persecution in the future. And this is the paradox of the Christian life. You see, when you live as a serious and open witness to Jesus Christ, an open public representative of Jesus Christ, two things will happen. The first thing is your life and witness will draw people to Jesus. They will see your life and they will say, I want what you want. I want what you have. Second thing that will happen is your life and witness will paint a target on your back. And you will be hated for what you stand for. And you will be opposed. And when that happens, what do we do? How do we respond? And this is where that old, good old instinctive fight or flight reflex kicks in, as it did with Peter. Now I'm gonna backtrack a little bit in the larger context of the story, but Peter goes through this whole process of how is he going to respond to opposition? to Jesus. Now the first response that we might respond with is the fight response. This is, you might say, Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane. The fight response. Now some of you are fight Christians. We have a strong self-defensive instinct. We really do. And we, we, we feel the need to defend ourselves when we feel we are unfair, unfairly treated. It, it's kind of just an instinctive thing we do. There's one thing we want to make clear, and that is that Christians definitely are not wimps. You know, back in, you know, a number of years ago when I was actually a student at PRBI, uh, we, you know, I was on the hockey team and we would play kind of local teams and we weren't really in a league, but we would just play pick games with whoever would play, uh, you know, and so we would play with the local beer drinking league and there were some, uh, some churches that we would play hockey against and, and generally these games were pretty, you know, kind of, I mean, they were good games, but they, you know, they were generally pretty friendly and, you know, and not a whole lot of uh, drama going on. There was one exception. There was one team that we played that, I mean, it was like Summit Series Part Two, right? 
It was an all-out war every single time we played this team. You know what team it was? Grand Prairie Alliance Church. <laughs> it was an all-out war, especially when the Mennonites were on the ice. I don't believe Mennonites are pacifists. I've played hockey with them, so it's... I'll tell you, I don't, and I don't know what it was. If it was, if it was sort of like bragging rights for the peace region as to who were the toughest Christians, the PRBIers or the G-Packers, I don't know. But those were the most intense, angry games of any game. We played the beer drinking leagues, and it was, ah, yeah, yeah, come on. you guys want to come for drinks? It was like it was just, it was just a friendly. We played G-Pack, it was like it was all out war. It, it was fascinating. <laughs> See, when we're wrongly treated, there is a strong temptation to fight back, right? especially if we have kind of the, the ability to do it, to meet insult with insult, blow with blow, protest with protest, boycott with boycott, accusation with accusation, gossip with gossip, bullying with bullying, slander with slander, power with power. We're like Peter. We want to pull our sword and we want to chop somebody. And you know, I said, you know, the, the tide is turning in our society. We're not, it, it seems like we are being seen in a more negative light in our society. Um, that's something that that's, you can see is shifting. Another thing that I'm also noticing a lot in these last few years is there are a lot of angry Christians. A lot of angry Christians who want to pick up their sword and hit somebody. Maybe might doesn't make right, but certainly being right justifies using might, right? <laughs> but is that the way of Jesus? Is that the example of Jesus? See, Jesus could have asserted this power. In fact, in one, in one of the Gospels, he actually says that. He says, nobody's taking my life. I'm laying it down. You have no power over me except the power that's been given to you by my Father in heaven. Right? Jesus could have been on the cross from the mocking Jesus on the cross and he'd say, if you're the son of God, come down from that cross. And he could have just said, hey, hold my grape juice. Right? Down he comes. He could have done that. But he didn't. He bore the insults in order to be obedient to his calling. And in the end, he was vindicated not because he defended himself, but because he was obedient to the Father and the Father raised him up. Now, if Ecclesiastes is right, there is a season for everything, which means there is a season to stand up, there is a season to stand your ground, there is a season to fight for what is right, but there is also a time to endure unjust treatment for the cause of Christ. There is a time to put down your sword and just take it on the chin for Jesus. Well, when that doesn't work, Peter goes to the second response, which is the flea response. You might call this the courtyard response. What do I do when it's obvious that I can't fight my way out of this? What does Peter do? Well, Peter's next strategy is to run. It's to hide. It's to lie, to deny. And maybe you're not Peter in the garden. Maybe you're Peter in the courtyard. You follow Jesus, but you do so very, very quietly. Very quietly. Because you don't really want to draw attention to your faith and risk the awkwardness or the embarrassment or the hostility 
Uh, you know, I, I really struggled with this. I'm just going to be honest. I really struggled with this as a, as a teenager. Um, I went to, every summer I went to Bible camp and I had all the Bible camp t-shirts, like a lifetime's collection of Bible camp t-shirts and all these types of things. I never wore them outside of Bible camp. Did not wear them. Didn't have any other Christian slogan t-shirts either. I was just very, very cautious about where I wore my I Love Jesus t-shirts. Now, it was actually pointless because I was the pastor's kid in a very small town and everybody knew I was the pastor's kid. So I, I, it really was a pointless exercise. But that was my instinct, right, was to hide to avoid the awkwardness of someone maybe teasing me because that would have been about the worst it would have been at that point maybe teasing me. I remember one day in high school when I deliberately swore. Now, I grew up in a family that had very strict um, rules on what you couldn't say, and, and swearing was one thing that was just a non-starter in our family. One day in high school where I deliberately swore, and it wasn't even, if you're going to rank profanity, it wasn't even really that high up the list, and I kind of had to force it out because it was so odd for me to actually say it, but I did it. I swore in front of my friends because I wanted them to know that I was double B bad brat. <laughs> Not one of those goody two-shoes Christian people, right? Well, maybe I was a Christian, but I was bad, all right? Um, those of you that are like middle-aged might remember if you ever watched and you're willing to admit that you watched Cheers, the scene that always comes to mind is Fraser running with scissors, right, to show that he's dangerous, right? I wanted them to know that I was bad. See, I wanted to fit in. And being a Christian made me feel like I stood out. What about you? Ever hidden your light because you didn't want to stand out? Didn't want to draw any attention to yourself? Didn't want to risk rejection or ridicule or teasing or maybe even to have to answer some questions? Now, I know, I mean, I have the luxury of, I've worked in churches, I've worked in Bible schools. I know that some of you live and work in environments that are far more hostile to Jesus than the environments that I work in. And I can't even begin to imagine the pressure that some of you sometimes feel about being public with your Christian faith. And that's why I'm not appealing in any way to my own example or my understanding of saying, I understand where you're at. I'm appealing to the example of Jesus. What example has Jesus left us. And some of us, some of you may pay a price for identifying with Jesus. But again, what is the example of Jesus? See, Jesus took this very, very different path that was neither fight nor flight. Uh, Jesus didn't rail and fight to protect his rights and his reputation when he was falsely accused and executed. But he also didn't back down and avoid the cost of speaking the truth about who he was. Somewhere between fighting back and hiding is this narrow patch of ground that Jesus stood on and he calls us to stand with him. See, while Peter was willing to kill for the kingdom, Jesus was willing to die for the kingdom. While Peter lied in order to stay out of trouble, Jesus told the truth knowing it would cause him 
trouble. When Peter tried to secure his safety at the cost of deep guilt and bitter tears, Peter surrendered his life willingly and in the end was vindicated and exalted. So what about us? So I want you to reflect on just these these two questions, two very simple questions. And maybe God will speak to you and say, yeah, that's that's the question you need to wrestle with. First question is this, where am I too prone to fight? Where am I too prone to fight? Where am I too prone to pick up my sword and protect myself and my reputation? Where do I need to lay down my sword, even if that means risking unjust mistreatment? And love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me and show grace in the face of opposition. Where do I need to lay down my sword and stop fighting? Second question is this one. Where am I too prone to flee? Where am I too prone to hide my identity as a Christ follower simply to avoid the awkwardness or the ridicule or maybe even the hostility? Where do I need to be willing to stand publicly for Christ? And see, the good news is that Jesus is not only our example showing us how to suffer well, but he's also our empowerer, the one who lives in us and gives us the power to stand. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but be encouraged, I have overcome the world. So yes, we may be wimps, but the one who lives in us is strong beyond belief, and he can help us stand. I want to close doing something just a little bit different here, and then the worship team is going to lead us in a final song. I just want to read for you some excerpts from 1 Peter as he wrestles with this whole dynamic tension. And it's a few minutes here, it's a, there's a few scriptures here, but I just want you to just listen and hear the Word of God as the Holy Spirit through Peter inspires us. So I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear the Word of God. And just listen and let the word of God speak to you as I read these excerpts from Peter's letter. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It's being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. When your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors so that even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. For God is pleased when conscious of his will, you patiently endure unjust treatment. Of course you get no credit for being patient if you are beaten for doing wrong. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. 
For God has called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. He never sinned nor deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. Do not repay evil for evil. Do not retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. Who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you do suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is what God wants, than to suffer for doing wrong. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through, as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. If you are insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you will be blessed, for the glorious Spirit of God rests on you. If you suffer, however, it must not be for murder, stealing, making trouble, or prying into other people's affairs. But it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. So humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, and at the right time he will lift you up in honor. Give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering you are. In his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So after you have suffered a little while, he will restore, support, and strengthen you, and he will place you on a firm foundation, all power to him forever. Amen.